on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined on America's talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week... We reach into the listener mailbag for notes on our Gilbert and Sullivan episode. And then it's turkey lurkey time. Find out what each member of the OBS team is thankful for this year. Plus two minute drill. Pandemic be damned. Melbourne Opera is going forward with a new ring cycle. Yikes. <laughs> Will it be a ride of the vaccines or an audience demerung? Yikes. Oof. You know what? College football can go collectively screw itself. I no one should be playing college football. I've yet to the watch tide should any not of the be rolling, NFL. and I do not say that lightly. It's all about soccer right now. It's all about soccer, N- not just because my daughter's like fanatical about it overnight, uh, <laughs> but the kids and I we watch some English Premier League mm. action. Tottenham Hotspur, Manchester City. It's a great, great day. So my children have now been introduced to the horrors of being an England fan. <laughs> I think I have a crush on England again. It's been a while, but uh, I'm watching The Crown, and I'm like, oh, God, those cheekbones. Ashley, turkey lurkey time. Does it take you back? It does. It does. In another lifetime, I was in the pit orchestra for the musical Promises, Promises that has the seminal hit, turkey lurkey time. So all of those, yeah, that was me in the background. Uh, and it, it's, I, I, I love it. Um, do I still know the choreo? I, I was going to say, I it's too bad it. that it's audio only this week because you missed Ashley and me doing the iconic Michael Bennett choreography. But you yes. know, when you're when you're missing one of your senses, I feel like the rest of them get so much more sharpened. But don't worry, everyone will be back on a video version of the Dallas Opera Network next week. They're just taking a little break for Thanksgiving, but we take a break for no one. No one we say. Let's talk some opera. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. A couple weeks ago, we did a inside look at Gilbert and Sullivan, and we're going to talk more Gilbert and Sullivan this week, much to everybody on the panel's chagrin, <laughs> except for mine. We're going to open up the listener mailbag before we do anything else on this show. One of our frequent letter writers who signs himself, Anthony from the Bronx, had a few choice words about our GNS show the other week. Hey, George. This is Anthony from the Bronx. I've called you before, George. Anyway, I was listening to your latest show, and I saw you were talking about Gilbert and Sullivan. I love those guys. I got a similar story to you. I think you said your old man was the one who introduced them to you. For me, it was my mama nooch, but, you know, whatever. Anyway, a couple thoughts on Gilbert and Sullivan. First of all, I hate that Joseph Pat production from the Shakespeare Festival. It's too campy, you know? You gotta just do it to do it, and it's the most serious thing in the world. That's what makes it funny. Not all that mugging around and oof, muddling and all that. Also, there's two ways to sing a pat a song. You could sing it on the back of the word, or you could sing it on the front of the word. And he sings it on the back of the word. You know, it's a pat 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 You got room to phrase then, you know what I mean? And you guys are all about singing and opera, I think, anyway, so... And maybe that's just a little note for the singers out there. Secondly, for me, Gilbert and Sullivan 
the genius is Gilbert. Don't get me wrong, I love Sullivan. Great tunes, you know, but, you know, largely he's a, a parodist. You know, a little bit of Handel here, a little bit of Verdi over here, a little bit of Mendelssohn, you know. But Gilbert, he really, like you said, topsy-turvy. He turned it all over on his head. I mean, I remember I was listening to an old episode years ago from Oliver on that other show he used to do. I'm, I don't know if they still do it. I think the main guy died, but anyway. He was talking about Rossini and the comic characters and how they came from, uh, you know, Commedia. You got Arlequin, the lover, you got the girl, and the Dottore with the patter songs. And he's a guy who thinks, ooh, his stuff don't stink, you know what I mean? I'm the, I'm the biggest guy around over here. But what Gilbert did with his patter characters is he had them acknowledge that they were incompetent. It's like the, the Peter principle. Hey, I know I'm here, but I shouldn't be here, but hey, I'm over here. I used to be over there, now I'm over here. So that's real innovation in theater, you know what I mean? In opera, in the characters, and the way it's all structured. Anyway, that's just my two cents. So, uh, I'll talk to you later. Yeah, and congratulations on uh, being on the, the Dallas Morning News now. That's great. I get to watch you guys. I mean, I tune out when you talk about the local weather, because it doesn't really affect me, but it's still nice to see you guys got a good home. All right, George, I'll talk to you later. Thanks. And thank you, Anthony, for from the, Anthony from the Bronx yeah. <laughs> to the show, Anthony from the Bronx. Thank you. Of course, you can always write to us at operaboxscore at gmail.com. If you're as tech savvy as Anthony from the Bronx, you can also even record <laughs> a voice memo. But the man has a point about the front of the word and the back of the word. It's not something we talked about on the show. And I'm glad that he chimed in on that because, I mean, that really does affect your ability to get out the words and the text as fast as possible in those patter songs. And it affects the singer's breathing too. Like a lot of time, a lot of voice teachers, uh, whenever I've coached anything that has patter, they'll tell you that you actually need a lot less consonant than you think you do. Uh, and if you really bite into them and try to make every single one of them count, you're not only hurting the like intelligibility of the text, but also you are going to make yourself a lot more tired by the end of the song. I think Anthony was completely wrong about the uh, taking Gilbert's side over Sullivan's. I, I was going to say, Weston, <laughs> I know you're going to have feelings about that part of this conversation. Get out of here. Get out of here, Anthony from the Bronx and your Gilbert apologia. Get out of here. <laughs> apologia. Would that be a... Would that Don't be treat a, our listeners like that. <laughs> would that be a guppologia? I, I would like to. Uh, I would like to uh, publicly challenge uh, Anthony from the Bronx uh, to a duel, which we can cover. I'm sure in a future listener mailbag, should he choose to accept my challenge. Is this going to be like a write-off, and you're going to each write a patter? I think we're going to both sort of like back away ten uh, ten paces from the laptop, and then throw a rock directly at the webcam and see who survives. I, I'm. But seriously, though, like, was Sullivan, in your opinion, Weston, I mean, is he nothing more than a parodist ripping off Mendelssohn? Well, I think that's the brilliance of it. I think he, uh, in in, in this sense, and I'll give Anthony this, he was. I mean, he was very much uh, aware of all of the the trends happening, but he was using them consciously. And I think there are uh, examples of his work, outside of his work uh, with Gilbert especially, where he does have a voice that shines through. But I think that consciousness of those other genres, especially in a sort of a parody sense and a comedic sense, uh, are really something that not a lot of composers can do well. I mean, you just have to look at the all the classical crossover albums that just do not work because there's not this 
this sense of how to make those things agree with each other or how to use them in a comedic and, and smart manner. And I'll say that the thing about parody is that it only actually works if it's if all of the details land. Absolutely. Uh, it's all about yeah. the, a successful parody is about the specificity. Uh, and and locking into what the little details and idiosyncrasies are that the audience will be able to pick on immediately, and that does show like a serious amount of craftsmanship uh, on the point of a composer. Whether or not it, you you can call it brilliance, I don't know if I'm quite in that camp yet. I am a Gilbert and Sullivan skeptic, <laughs> um, but I will say I will recognize game. I will just <laughs> I will just say that um, never take somebody's accent like for granted and and let 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 you draw conclusions about who they are and what their level of intelligence is you know people come from all over the world and can sound really sort of uneducated just because of the tone of their voice but they actually have they could be very thoughtful and you know wow oliver what do you mean i don't understand what you might be talking about i am i am plum perplexed oliver do continue roll tide roll how dare you weston (laughs) In this economy. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that what got me? Why is that what got me? Support for Opera Box Score is provided in part by Opera Philadelphia. Opera Philadelphia introduces the Opera Philadelphia Channel, a season of innovative, dynamic opera reimagined for the screen. Do you think we missed our chance to be on the Opera Philadelphia channel because we took the bait from the Dallas Opera Network? <laughs> no, man. Syndication is just What's around that? the corner. Oh, absolutely. The We're going national, baby. channel features soprano Lisette Oropesa in her acclaimed role debut as Violetta in La Traviata. She sounds so good in every video of her that, I, that I've come across. In I watch like four times. nationally renowned tenor Lawrence Brownlee. Friend of the into show. recitals, of the show. including the searing cycles of my being, a reflection on being a black man in America. Do you guys know about the reverse sear? Yeah, of course. Okay, George, do you know about the reverse? I sear? do not know. Is that is that like a okay. uh, car? <laughs> no, it's a way to cook a piece of meat um, by actually raising the meat's temperature in a cool oven and then finishing it in the pan with the sear. Most people sear first and then continue to cook it so it gets up to the temperature but this is like doing it in the opposite You're direction me hungry so a i thought it was a dance move uh <laughs> but b what does that have to do with uh i am waiting for the punchline oh because uh it's cycles of my being is searing is what the there's also a new film of Bring david t little soldier songs but so much mm, more of the show the opera philadelphia channel available on tvs computers and mobile devices buy a season pass for just 99 bucks or rent individual productions at operaphila.tv the opera philadelphia channel get yourself a cheese thing Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Thanksgiving is right around the corner here in the U.S. It's a little different this year, but being thankful is always part of the holiday. Now, depending on when you're listening to our show, maybe you're cooking alone, eating alone, or back from (laughs) traveling. Hopefully you didn't go anywhere. Here's what the OBS team are thankful for in opera in 2020. And I'm going to kick it off. I do not want to make light of the pandemic. Obviously, this is a dreadful 
global event, which we all want to not have happen. We all want to be rid of as soon as possible. That said, let us not say that the pandemic has not given some of us the occasional gift. I would argue, and I think my colleague comments are going to fit into this, is that there are ways in which the pandemic has changed the art form of opera for the better. The pandemic has allowed us to get rid of some of the things about this art form that most of us never liked in the first place. And I want to start with Weston. What do you see under that umbrella as something that has really changed about this art form for the better because of the pandemic and that you are thankful for? Well, I think uh, you're you're quite right. It's been a really rough year for everybody. Uh, and it, it's 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 honestly has put a lot of artists out of work, which is, of course, the great tragedy, I think, of the pandemic, in addition to, you know, the deaths and the pandemic itself. Um, but uh, I, I think that one thing that I've been seeing that's been really exciting to me is the explosion of opera adjacent media um, uh, as a result of the pandemic. So I'm, I'm talking about things like like the Dallas Opera Network, which we are currently mooching off of, uh, the Opera Philadelphia channel, uh, Friends of the Show at Osea, um, and, you know, Lawrence Brownlee's uh, like weekly podcasts and things like this. It's, I mean, usually competition for us, not necessarily the best thing, but, but I think for opera as a whole, having all of these um, voices coming to the surface are really marking a significant change in what I'm thinking of as sort of opera's PR department, for and one of a better word. do you feel word. like the representation of those voices has broadened because of the pandemic? Oh, I absolutely do. I mean, uh, certainly, uh, I think the the uh, protests surrounding Black Lives Matter, George George Floyd, would not have happened without um, the strains of the pandemic and the fact that everyone was unemployed to come about. It's the, the silver lining. Uh, and having these kinds of... Uh, uh, voices um, coming to the forefront that are not old, white, um, rich, you know, people who have been long been associated with opera in popular media. Finally, we have uh, tons of podcasts, videos, um, interviews out there in all levels of the media showing what opera really is and can be and what and bringing to high, uh, bringing into focus what still needs to be done to make it better. And for me, I think that's something that could only have happened in 2020, despite all of the terrible hardship that we've all had to go through. Oliver, I'm going to save your thank you for a little bit later on. Ashley, what are you thankful for in opera and how might it relate to what this pandemic has done? You know, I am, uh, there's one word that's kind of come to mind when I think about the opera world over the course of the last year, going back even into 2019, not just in pandemic times. And that word is innovation. Uh, we have been forced through, you know, global circumstances. But even before that, we've really been fo forced to innovate this art form and, mm. you know, things that are very obvious for now, like the technologies and the platforms, but more importantly, things like audience development, uh, who is on the stage, who is in the boardroom. I think back even pre-pandemic to things like Opera Theater of St. Louis and the audience development initiatives that they funded, you know, where they really 
figured out why people weren't going to the opera. They decided to iterate or pivot. Of course, you know, we've talked on this show about Fort Worth, excuse me, and their community-based approach and reaching out to the to the folks that are in the community to remind them that this organization is is of and for the people. But even more so, innovation in who's on the stage, uh, innovation in the voices and innovation in the meat suits that house them, uh, how we are chipping away however slowly uh, at what all of us, many of us were either implicitly or explicitly told this art form was supposed to be and what it was supposed to look like. Uh, And so I am very grateful that that continues to be dismantled piece by piece. So for those of us that may have felt at one point in time that we weren't welcome in this community, we uh, we are taking battering rams to the doors and we're bringing our own lawn chairs. Is meat suits a term that I don't know? Yeah. Okay. Did you guys, <laughs> did you guys all catch that meat suits? Yeah. Yeah. That's, okay. that, that's what all the kids are saying, Oliver. Okay. Because um, like, <laughs> if you listen to my other podcast from a long time ago, I coined the term meat walls for something that we can't talk about in this podcast. Oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's really kind of extraordinary we're able to produce this show on Zoom, being as your main form of communication is a rotary telephone. All <laughs> yeah, but there you go. There's the point of, of technology, right? Like, there's no Innovation. way that as a show, we ever would have moved to video if it were not for... A, the mm. pandemic for a platform like Dallas for the mm. technology of Zoom. Um, Ashley, you're also thankful for, I think, our listeners as well. <laughs> I am. I, I forgot to read my own note, which was, thank you, listeners. Thank you, Dallas Opera Network. And finally, thank you to my co-gentlemen for helping me be a part of this fantastic ride that we get to do each week. I am thankful for you. I'm still saving Oliver as my dessert for what? the no, Thanksgiving feast. Oh my. You, you are <laughs> totally messing up this format. <laughs> well, you, you, we <laughs> talked about it before that we started recording and now you're like deciding to go rogue. Well, you can, you can, I can eat my pumpkin pie before the salad. Are we sure we want to show everyone how the sausage gets made, gentlemen? (laughs) (laughs) Oliver Camacho, what are you thankful for in Well, mine was so related to what Wesson was talking about. So (laughs) just rewind back in your minds five minutes, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the, the pandemic has given us unprecedented access to so many artists who I would never have gotten to agree to sit down and be mm, interviewed yeah. because they had nothing better to do. <laughs> and I was just, you know, we had a lot of interviews and they were all lovely in their own way. And I don't want, to, I, I'm grateful for every one of them. But sometimes we had these moments on the show where people really let us in and really let us like see them. And I was surprised that like, you know, we live in a time now where people are just so open and, you know, you think about the mystery of being like Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis or Maria Callas or something like that. And like you would never get to know about their personal lives, you know, but we have really like literally looked into people's homes <laughs> because yeah. of yeah. what we do here on the podcast. So that's absolutely true. What What's the highlight? Some, well, some of the ones I want to point rem- remember, which happened all during the pandemic were Russell Thomas, uh, who we brought on thinking he was going to be this like champion of racial inequality. But instead, he was a champion of singing Verdi as it's written. You know, like it was a total surprise that he's a total nerd. And um, (laughs) while he is like one of the poster boys of, you know, fighting racism in opera, he actually is more interested in talking about trilling 
in the role of Manrico, <laughs> which was a complete surprise to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then there was the, the Lydia Yankovskaya second interview that we did. And she introduced the idea of being a mother in this business. And it mm. inspired literally an entire episode talking to other women who have gone through the process of becoming mothers uh, in the middle of their careers. And uh, I'm Definitely. just so grateful for Lydia to beginning to want to want to talk about that, to bring it up and for, you know, helping Ashley realize her, you know, dream episode of talking to one of the best and, segments we've ever yeah. done. I mean, well, yeah. I'm taking credit for Ashley. Really Ashley ever did. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean no, and I, I'm I'm thankful for the opportunity to add to my thanks. But yeah, it, it was it, it that episode. They all mean a lot to me, but that one really, really meant a lot to me. Great episode. And then there was Odaline de la Martinez, who is a conductor that we don't know that much here in the U.S., but uh, we got to talk to her and we learned so much about Ethel Smythe, and we learned about her own opera composing and how she, you know, is also a pioneer for women conductors and women composers. And women run record labels. Um, and, you know, by the time you are her age in your career, you're no longer considered a pioneer. And it sort of reminds me of what's been happening in politics. You know, like there are so many people who have been doing the work of being, you know, progressive. But by the time they actually get anywhere in their careers, they're no longer the progressives. You <laughs> right. <know? Yeah. laughs> um, then we talked to Zachary James. Uh, which yeah. was such an incredible conversation. And, you know, I pushed him a little bit about queer identity and the role of Captain Veer and Billy Budd. And it really, I mean, I, thankfully he of was John willing to talk. Yeah, John Claggart. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, and Billy Budd. And he was willing to talk about that. It really made me listen to how he sang that role differently, which was available from Des Moines' uh, temporary summer festival stream. And then we talked to Nicholas Tamanya, who is a countertenor who's living in Germany, not because he wants to, but because he's stuck there because of the pandemic. And he went to Germany to do a job right after he his uh, Agrippina in HD debuted. And it's like the pinnacle of his career. I mean, I've known this guy. I've known about this guy for a really long time. And he's been doing the really hard work to get his name out there and to sing for people. And, you know, you finally sing at the Met and you finally sing Met in HD with Joyce Di Donato, I mean, how much higher can you go as a countertenor, mm -hmm. you know? And just as he got to that point in his career, everything stopped. And yeah, that's that's heartbreaking. And that's also like we pray that when this is all over, he can continue where he left off and doesn't have to start over again. Then We've there also was, seen a lot of emotional vulnerability, right? From their Absolutely. And one of the interviews that really was moving was Benedict Christianson, who is icy cold in the way he presents himself as a person, as an artist. But as an artist, when he performs, he's completely out there and raw, but really buttoned up when you talk to him, which I thought was really fascinating. And then on the opposite end of that, we talked to Christine Gerke, and we didn't include everything we said to her. But she was, I don't want to say she was so like sloppy <laughs> emotionally, but she was really on the edge on the entire interview because we were talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her performance of Abscherlicher mm. uh, in Lincoln Center Plaza and what that meant to her. And um, it was really, she was just so open and, you know, here's this woman who has this incredible career and she's singing the hardest music in the world and she's so down to earth. And I think a lot of us know that already from her Facebook presence and whatnot, but to really see that that's not an act, that's really who she is, you know. If there's one clip then that you're thankful for that you want to share with us, what's it going to be? Well, 
there isn't one clip that I would, I mean, the, I can't really define this with one clip, but I do want to play something that just is a little bit cheerful. And uh, as an artist that we also got a chance to interview, which is Emily Pogorelts, who really gave us the insight of what it's like to be transitioning from the young artist stage to the professional stage right in the middle of this pandemic. And here she is singing uh, a song, a WC song called Pierrot. Um, with pianist Mikhail Eliasson. And this is from a couple of years ago, but she's just so good. And they'll just cheer everybody up just for a moment. So much to be thankful for there, Oliver, and especially all your work in lining up these incredible guests yes. and for having yeah, us, no which takes a phenomenal amount of wrangling. And of course, just takes balls. That's all. Thankful to them to <laughs> to appear on the show. Last but not least, my salad course, Matt Cummings. <laughs> what are you thankful for? in opera in 2020. Well, thinking about what what everyone was talking about so far with just the expansion of digital access to the art form and that what what I'm thankful for is that gives a chance to explore more deeply for people who have been opera fans for a long time. You know, you've got the whole you've got all of this at your fingertips that we don't usually get in the better times. Uh even and that also means that for new audiences, like there has never been more information, more resources about opera. You just heard about all those interviews that are available for like looks under the hood. There are streams happening everywhere. Um, not everything is going to work in the long term in terms of like digital outreach because there is no substitute for being in person. But the fact of the matter is we have a lot of people out here passionate about the art form who are fighting for the art form and how to improve it. Uh, and even though being a digital audience member is not anyone's first choice, it can still um, be a comfort through what promises to be a very challenging set of months that we have ahead of us. Uh, and there, the, these resources hopefully will not go away for that time. <laughs> Uh, but really, when I think back about the opera world in the last year, what stands out in my mind as being um, probably the most important thing that I heard of about this art form was when LA Opera hosted that roundtable with Janai Bridges. 
mm-hmm. um, yeah. in the wake of the George Floyd shooting and killing and the protests about racial inequality and Black Lives Matter uh, and the six singers who stood up to speak about the representation problems and the biases that are still alive and well in this art form and really shine a light on what couldn't be ignored anymore. And I'm so thankful for their honesty and for their bravery and for the resolve and commitment that they showed in standing up. There was Karen, Karen Slack, Julia Bullock, Larry Brownlee, Janae Bridges, Morris Robinson, Russell Thomas, and there are many, many others who, who spoke these same words, same mm-hmm. truths in other forums. Uh, but that gives me hope for this art form, and I am thankful for that most of all. That LA Opera Roundtable is available on YouTube. It is must-watch viewing. Matt, what's a, a clip that you want to share as part of your thankfulness? I can't think of anything that sums up that just all-encompassing feeling more than this clip, which is uh, of the John Muster song Litany, which is with poetry by Langston Hughes. And this is a recording of Julia Bullock and uh, pianist Christian Reif, and it looks like it was recorded during quarantine, so please enjoy. Last but not least, just to wrap it up, again, the pandemic has been unbearable. It has brought significant change to this art form. And when I think about everything that you've said, team, two things that stand out to me. First of all, this idea of innovation. This art form of opera is moving into film. Whether you like it or not, whether you think it should or not, it is, and it's here to stay. Make your peace with opera on film, whether that is an HD broadcast that's here to stay, whether that is an archival sharing, whether that is going to be something we don't know about yet, which is multiple cameras, whether that's opera specifically composed 
for film. This is a blending of the art forms that's going to be around for years and years to come. Secondly, on a personal note, I'm thankful that this pandemic has forced some conversations about how taxing the life of being in this business of opera is, how taxing it is on oneself, how taxing it is on one's finances. I think about middleclassartist.com, how taxing it is on families. My hope is that we can be thankful that this pandemic is showing us how we need to change the way we create this art. And that it's not something that we can do 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that we as artists, directors, singers, designers, producers, we need rest, we need space, and perhaps slowing down is something that we're not going to lose when we go forward post-pandemic to continue to create. Last but not least, of course, thankful for Oliver, Weston, Matt, and Ashley. And thanks to all of our listeners, whether you're on uh, radio, whether you're on our podcast, or whether you're on Dallas Opera Network. This just in. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. The Met has offered to pay many furloughed employees for the first time since April as a part of the House's ongoing union negotiations. In exchange for up to $1,500 a week now, the employees would lose about 30% off their paychecks until the box office receipts go back to normal. Len Eggert, the executive director of the American Guild of Musical Artists, said that AGMA members, quote, have no interest in selling out their future for short-term relief. Concurrently, the Met Orchestra has received donations to support its members after being without salary since April 1st. The Spring Point Partners donated $150,000 to the orchestra's nonprofit fund, which supports orchestra musicians, associates, staff, and librarians through grants. In the newest article for Middle Class Artist, friend of the show Zach Finkelstein and co-authors Dana Lynn Varga and Dr. Hilary Labont reveal systemic discrimination against women in the opera industry at every level. According to dozens of interviews and decades of census and industry data, women in opera are provided less opportunity, receive fewer scholarships, take on more debt, are paid less, and when it comes to decisions about their own bodies, are excluded, penalized, and harassed. Bewitched, bothered, and bewildered, but not surprised. Read all about it at middleclassartist.com. Musical America has announced the 2021 Artists of the Year. Beth Morrison for her creating opportunities for contemporary composers. Soprano Julia Bullock for using her voice to bring attention to matters of activism and racial inequality. And mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton for her championing of personal causes such as gay rights and equitable artist artistic representation. Houston Grand Opera announced Friday that managing director Perrin Leach will be leaving the company effective December 31st. Leach, who has been with the company for nearly 14 years, serving as managing director for nine of them, will act as a consultant during leadership transition. Pittsburgh Opera's production of David T. Little's Soldier Songs will no longer be performed with an audience. After an advisory notice from the health director of Allegheny County, the company will live stream Soldier Songs, starring baritone Yazid Gray, on YouTube and Facebook on December 11th. Fort Worth Opera is the latest organization to announce that future in-person performances will not happen due to the ongoing pandemic. 
until we are able to safely gather indoors and at a capacity that is socially responsible and distant, we will have to continue finding new, innovative ways to share opera and our love of music and theater with our community, said General Director Afton Battle. New digital and live offerings from Fort Worth are expected to be announced in the coming weeks. Meanwhile, in Australia, Melbourne Opera has announced a new Ring Cycle production slated for February of 2021. Resident conductor Greg Hawking said, quote, Someone has to get things started, and there's a hunger for large-scale mainstream opera. It's the responsibility of all local companies to keep the industry going by employing local artists. The Melbourne Opera is planning to allow at least 1,000 people in the recently renovated Regent Theatre pending COVID-19 restrictions. Opera Atelier has announced that Misha Brugers-Gosman has been named Artist-in-Residence for the company's reimagined 2020-2021 season. The Canadian soprano will work closely with the Toronto-based company as it reimagines its popular Making of an Opera program as a virtual experience for the COVID-19 world. In a statement, Brugers-Gosman said she is, quote, proud and excited to assume the role of Artist-in-Residence during this unprecedented time and is also honored to be an ambassador to new, diverse audiences. A new app in Germany is garnering buzz as a, quote, game changer for musicians. Berlin's startup eNote has paired artificial intelligence experts with musicologists, offering interactive sheet music that can be instantly transposed, can toggle between movements or measures, turn pages, change the size of scores, and print on the go. E-Note will initially concentrate on solo and chamber works with plans to have a comprehensive orchestral and operatic repertoire within a year. Exit stage right. American bass and voice teacher Arthur Woodley has died at the age of 71. He performed in opera companies across the U.S. and premiered a number of operas, including Paul Moravec's The Shining and Terence Blanchard's Champion. And on this day, November 23rd, in 1876, it was the birth of Spanish composer and conductor Manuel de Falla. Legendary tenor Enrico Caruso made his American debut at the Met as the Duke in Rigoletto in 1903. In 1915, it was the birth of Czech bass Marcello Cortes in Prague, and followed by the birth of bass baritone Randolph Simonette in 1918 in the Bahamas. In 1921, it was the first performance of Leos Janacek's Katya Kabanova at the National Theater. In 1928, it was the birth of American composer Jerry Bach, who later won Tony Awards for both Fiddler on the Roof and Fiorello. In 1933, it was the birth of Polish composer Krzysztof Penderecki. In 1935, it was the birth of American tenor William Lewis. And Ethel Linginska's Gale, The Haunting, had its premiere in 1935 at the Chicago City Opera Company. In 1955, it was the birth of Australian tenor Glenn Winsdale. And in 1955, the same year, the birth of the English tenor John Graham Hall. And in 2002, it was the first solo performance by a countertenor at Carnegie Hall in New York City. But he has since been canceled. And that's your two-minute drill.
So that was Enrico Anchiladas. <laughs> I mean Enrico Caruso. I love Caruso. that we put we put the non-trained uh, non-singer on the uh, segment it. that has the Trial most names. Yeah, West West <laughs> also blue. It's Glenn Winslade. It's not Glenn Winslade. It's totally fine, but he did a great job. And like I work with people uh, in my other job that wouldn't do as well as he just did with yeah. all of those Polish and the, Czech this, this and secret Spanish. Was, and... The secret was not having any French performers that I had to read or <laughs> else it would have been just been a wash. <laughs> Enrico. So that was Enrico Caruso from 1912 in Bella Figlia dell'Amore from Rigoletto. Maybe that's what he sounded like when he made his debut at the Met. Speaking it. of the Met... Yeah, speaking of the Met, before we get to Matt, who's got a hot take on the Met, quick fantasy football update. Tobias and I are currently on a six-game losing streak, uh, and we're on on path to be crushed by Lawrence Brownlee (laughs) pending the outcome of tonight, Monday's game. Much as he predicted. Add, uh, yes, right, that, um, you know, when I was living in Germany and I was an assistant director. Thanks. I, uh, I did a production of Fiddler on the Roof entirely in German. Uh, and the, sh- the show in German is called Anatevka, which is the name of the oh, shtetl where it takes Tevka. place. And, you know, it was so brilliant. It was so cool to do that show in German. It just made total sense. Uh, what makes no sense is the Metropolitan Opera, Matt. What's going on? <laughs> so the Metropolitan Opera, who is... I mean, they don't have a lot of money to operate, but in general, a lot of money flows through the Metropolitan Opera. Mm. Um, And they have been playing particular hardball with their employees, more so than almost any other organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, And their their most recent offer to people who haven't been paid by their employer since April is that they will pay them 70% of their base salaries up to $1,500 a week, which is not nothing. Uh, But in exchange to that, the unions would have to agree to contracts that significantly reduce take-home pay for an unforeseeable amount, length of time into the future, until the box office receipts reach pre-pandemic levels. Uh, And the thing about this union negotiation shadow boxing is it's, you kind of have to keep your eye on both balls here, because they purposely will release these statements that don't actually go into any of the details so mm. that you can't form a good opinion about it. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It, but they are, but there are very often like poison pills that are snuck in here that sound very reasonable, but have domino effects down the line. Uh, and it's, it, Agma needs to keep its eye on those balls. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, and all the other unions the, as well but especially when it comes to the met because um as you said more than almost any other company in the u.s at least they have been particularly um uh particularly recalcitrant when it comes to uh uh funding their uh their employees furlough to the point where some of them literally can't afford to live in new york anymore and i uh 
And I do, I do want to point out that according to the New York Times, they estimated, I believe it was, uh, what, in 2023 or 25, um, that they would be a box office receipts back to then. But that seemed to me like such a shot in the dark. It's, and it, also... Yeah, that's based on like the estimates of when they think New York tourism is going to come all the way back. Which doesn't necessarily uh, mean yeah. the same thing. Uh, it they, um, and. And it, it, it is very much a kicking the can down the road uh, sort of maneuver. and uh, With people's I'm, salaries on the line, like people's yeah, livelihoods. Yeah, like it, it is absolutely becoming, you know, I mean, with a 30% reduction in salary, can some of these people even afford to live in New York off of that? You know, it's, it's, it's a mess. Metropolitan Opera, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. <laughs> I was going to say too big to fail, but I like yours better. <laughs> uh middle class artists not too big to fail they can do no wrong <laughs> they just, so true they just i uh, hey, give us the hot take ashley i mean did you know that even though there are three times as many of them in training camps and conservatories women don't get as many opportunities in opera oh my really? god you don't say <laughs> film and 11 in other shocking news water is wet the sky is blue and a woman on the street was told to smile ah! exactly this yeah, this as, just in bears defecate in woods. As, as a soprano, this really must have come as a huge shock to you, Ashley. Again, I can't afford a new table, which is the only reason I'm not flipping this one. Um, no, I mean, here's the deal. I am so grateful for Zach. I am so grateful for the work that he's doing and the co-authors in this article, which I have yet to get through because I start raging and I have to take breaks. Um, but this is... Ask any woman in opera any time in the last two generations, none of this will come as a shock to them. So my hope mm. is that people reading this, that it will magically reach a population that will listen to data and journalism because they sure right. as heck haven't been listening to yeah. us. And it really underscores for me, I think, the need to continue to produce operas that have casts of women instead of just all these men courtiers because that is where so many of these add up you know you do an opera that takes place in royalty and you're like well we need 842 soldiers and three mates <laughs> yeah yeah and if there aren't enough write them write them yeah absolutely but this disparity as we all know also encourages male mediocrity it absolutely. Yes. Oh, who are you telling? Um, <laughs> not that. And not also, that we men like, need any more encouragement? It's, it's <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it's it, they don't need any more encouragement. Let me let me just give you a quick nutshell of like what my experience was kind of like in being a singer. Not totally. No, I'll I'll call it a, a hypothetical. So, if I'm mm. supposed to run a marathon with all of you, um, but I don't get to start until about three and a half hours after you do uh and then every quarter mile somebody comes up and just punches me right in the throat and takes my <laughs> shoes i'm probably not going to finish the race at the same time as you and i say this as a white woman so can you imagine because i have way more privilege and comforts than a number of other people in this industry can you imagine what it's like for women of color Okay, mm. ran, ran over. I can't even concisely put this together. I'm just, I'm, I'm mad and I'm grateful for journalism. And Zach, that's no, all. Not at all. It was, it was extremely concise and moving. And uh, it's extremely problematic. Oliver, good stuff happening in Canada. Yeah, I mean, I'm just so happy about Misha Brugers-Gosman continuing her relationship with Opera Telly. Opera Telly really is dedicated to its artists and they tend to feature the same people over and over again. But in doing so, uh, they 
get the best out of their artists, I think, because the artists artists trust the process and trust the director and, you know, are comfortable with the audience, all these things. And we know from uh, following Misha Brugger's Gozman from last year that she had open heart surgery mm. and she was also dealing with her mother being ill at the exact same time. And so it wasn't clear if she was going to come back to singing, but she's back. And now she's also, you know, leading the next generation at Opera Atelier. So I'm happy for her. And here's my third or fourth plea to Julia Bullock to please come on the show. <laughs> now that she is named the 2021, one of the 2021 artists of the year from Musical America, she's got to come on. She's got to. And I would also love Jamie Barton to come on. And I would also love an invitation for Prototype, uh, the 2022 festival. I don't need to go to the 2021 online festival. I could do that from home. But uh, when you guys get back on track with live performances, uh, we would love to be a part of it. Prototype, Beth Morrison, etc. Perrin Leach leaving Houston Grand Opera. His defining moment when Hurricane Harvey hit Houston in August of 2017, Houston Grand Opera responded so incredibly well by carrying on, by finding a new venue to to reimagining the productions that they were doing that season in uh, a space that they had to transform acoustically, scenically, not least to deal with the trauma of that event. And that is really the defining moment, I would say, for his tenure there. I, what, what do y'all think about the uh, the Melbourne Opera Ring? I mean, <laughs> you want to talk about guts. Guts. I mean, what was, it, it, uh, it's, what it's was, like, what was his quote? Quote, someone has to get uh, things started. It's really like going from zero to 60 in like no, in, well, in 17 hours, because that's how long the ring is. But uh, it, it's <laughs> very much, uh, it, it's a gutsy proposition. I mean, um, the there we're hearing good news about vaccines. Uh, and I, I'm not entirely sure of the, the state of Australia right now uh, in, in particular, but probably better. I than certainly us. hope they've done. I, well. I certainly hope they can, um, they can pull it off. And I would, uh, and you know, I, I would be the first person uh, in the seats, but they're probably not going to let anyone in from the U.S. while they're putting that on. <laughs> I mean, that ring cycle goes up in three months. Most Ooh, companies nope. couldn't do a ring cycle in perfect conditions in three years. Just absolutely astounding, and I and in a new theater too. Like, who knows what the what the new technical specifications are? I I, I don't know. I don't know if they've always had this planned. If they always had like you know, if the, this was like someone's, uh, you know, like most of us were getting into like baking sourdough or like knitting. Someone was sitting there and just like creating a production for the ring cycle, and they're like, "I'm ready to go." Maybe it's going to be a sourdough-themed ring cycle. <laughs> Can you imagine all of those failed starters are your choristers? <gasps> <laughs> just like everybody's just rolling in yeast. But Ugh. natural yeast. E-note, I, I admit that I'm something of a Luddite. Like, I'm not sure what the excitement is about E-note. What? How are, oh. you not, how are you not excited about E-note? Are you kidding? I'm like... I'm not excited about have, E-note. I'm having an aneurysm over E-note. I'm force. so excited. Is this, like the, is this like the latest thing, like vaping or something? Oh, or? Grandpa. Oh, no, that is not... No, that's not what this means. Um, is yeah. this huffing? Are people huffing? <laughs> <laughs> I know this, Oliver's deadly silence in the this background. This is killing me. This is so 
so great. No, uh, okay. For anybody who has had to use electronic scores, the notion of them was so exciting. And so you've seen mm-hmm. programs like Fourscore, and there's a couple others. They leave a lot to be desired. They're um, doing their absolute best. They are. Like, they're your bless friend. Bless their hearts. Bless their hearts. They're, those other programs are like your friend that like means well and wants it so much, but has never trained for this thing that they want. Uh, and you can't help but like root for them. But in the back of your head, you're like, this is never going to happen and it's not going to go well. Um, so no, I'm excited about this. You know, the, the notion of AI machine learning that's uh that's that's a really interesting and exciting place to be and you know i love a piece of intersectionality so the fact that we've got a real steam project here with stem and the arts coming together i am Mm. so 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 excited about this when they were talking about how you can jump and toggle measures you can transpose on site those i i exclaimed aloud as i read this article and i know (laughs) I think was it Matt? Were you geeking out with me earlier, right before we started? Yeah, I'm very, I'm very excited because the only way to get scores if you don't have access to like a a really good music library, the main resource Mm -hmm. is this website um, called Mm imslp.com, which is a great place. And some of the scores that you find on there are terrific and very easy to read. And some, and some of them are written in tenor clef. <laughs> are le- they're less with, terrific. Yeah. It's 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 cuneiform at best. Yeah. It is. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's tough. So I, you know, I there's still there's still a lot to go. It's going to be another year or so before there are scores that are mostly of interest to me, meaning vocal and opera scores. But I let me tell you, if this is successful and they come around with an IPO, I'm going to be one of the first people. We'll be looking to invest. For sure. Absolutely. Maybe they'll advertise on Opera Box Score. We should. Ooh. Yeah. I am sending the email right now. Oh my God, that's so exciting. It's a pretty big week considering Thanksgiving's right around the corner. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. The Thanksgiving special in the books. We got some good calls and bad calls. We're going to start with Oliver Camacho. Well, let's not forget that this week is when Boston Early Music Festival is going to look back at Orfeo uh, with Aaron Sheehan. There are two free performances to stream on Friday. It's the Monteverdi Orfeo. That's Friday night at uh, 7 o'clock Central. And on Sunday at three at 2 o'clock Central, 3 p.m. Eastern, it's Charpentier's La Descente d'Orfeo aux Enfers. Uh, so check that out. Uh, it's free, and you can see the beautiful Aaron Sheehan, who was our interview guest recently. I also want to shout out to Laura Strickling, whose recording literally just came out like yesterday. It's called Confessions, and it's a collection of contemporary art songs composed by uh, Clarissa Saad, Jill DeLions, Tom Chapulo, Amy Beth Kirsten, Michael Jupstrom, and Libby Larson, and um, I've already listened to it uh, for my other job, and it sounds like a million bucks. And she was on our show, our Mother's Day episode. Exactly. And last but not least, if you need a little bit of early music joy in your life, look up an ensemble called Vivid Consort, V-I-V-I-D, Vivid Consort. And their newest video just came out today. Uh, It's called uh, Can't She Excuse My Wrongs. It's a Dowlin song. And just watch it, and you will be so happy that you did. It's so good. Ashley Hardgrave. Uh, In what is turning out to be uh, Ashley's book club recommendations, I have yet another book to recommend to you this week. Uh, The uh, the actress and singer uh, who I secretly wish was part of the opera world instead of the musical theater world, uh, Rachel Bloom, she's known for uh, her initial 
uh, she did a series of viral videos and then she became the creator and the the brainchild behind the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is one of my favorites. We could do an entire show on it because I think there's a lot of operatic themes. However, she came out with a book this week that's called I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are. And it is, it is the height of uh, artistic vulnerability and kids that were bullied and othered and felt like they didn't belong and found themselves through their art. Uh, and I think there's a lot of great themes that would lend themselves to someone who is a young singer or a young musician trying to make it in the opera world. Uh, and then secondly, uh, in the vein of opera companies coming out with digital content creation networks, uh, Boston Lyric Opera has come up with operabox.tv, which is their new online home for opera and classical music. And they have a debut video and it's called Retro Plus Shortcuts. And, or that's the series name. And it's this ultimate diva lip sync. And it is... You know, I'll, I'll go this far. It's a hoot. I'll say it. That diva lip sync, <laughs> it's a hoot. We'll forgive hoot. them for stealing our name. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com, N-O-R-M-W-O-O-D-E-L.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. This podcast version of our show available on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score would be totally cool. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is Weston Williams. For Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera over seconds and thirds. We're back with an all-new show next week when finally Weston puts an overlooked opera under further review. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more leftovers. Join us.